Our Father, we live in a very fast-paced world. We are, uh, we are a hurried people. We get up early and we go hard until late. And it's all we can do to sit in a chair for just a few minutes without nodding off because we expend a tremendous amount of energy meeting our responsibilities and returning calls and emails and all of these different things. And life is so full of details and alerts and notifications and demands to respond and this and that. It's just a hurried life. We go 24-7. That's why it's not all that surprising when we read your word that as you oversee our lives and lead us through life, that you do something that is very counterintuitive to us, and that is you call us to wait. We don't want to miss a green light. Every yellow light we see, we're colorblind, and we turn it into green. We don't have time to stop. We don't have time to wait. We've got a list. We've got to check it off. And it seems like the more we check it off, even at the end of the day, there's more on that list than there was when we started. We do not want to be delayed. We do not want to be denied. We do not want to wait. But so many times in Scripture, we read the word wait. And so many times as we read of men in the Bible, uh, in whom lives there you worked in their lives, you call them to wait. That's difficult for us. It's difficult for us when we're under pressure. It's waiting. It's difficult for us when we need an answer. It's difficult for us when we need to get a green light so that we can move ahead and accomplish what we feel like we need to accomplish. But there are times you set us aside from the normal pace and you ask us to wait and you test us to see if we will wait upon you. Doesn't mean that we are, it doesn't mean that we're apathetic. It doesn't mean that we don't go about our responsibilities. It doesn't mean that we're not active, but sometimes you hem us in and we've done what we can do, and we can't do a thing until you move, and so we're called to wait. The psalmist in, one, in Psalm 130 was forced to wait, and he said, In your word do I hope. The longer we wait, the more we lose hope. The longer we wait for an answer and don't hear, the more we lose hope. So tonight we would ask that you would take us back to your word that reminds us that you are the one in charge and the one in control and the one who knows what is best. My times are in your hands.
even the times of waiting. And even though I wait, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You've got us, Lord. You've got us. You're ahead of us. You're behind us. You're on each flank. You're above above us. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So for the man who is here tonight and called to wait, help him to dig deep in the word and to increase his trust in you and the fact that you know what's best. And that you will give us the green light at precisely the right moment. We will trust you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are still in our study on the Ten Commandments. We've been in this study since 1953. (laughs) We have been in this study um, since uh, the fall. Started in September. We will be in this study until we end the semester, the end of April. I haven't said this for a while, but the title of the series on the Ten Commandments is Building on Bedrock. That's the title. Because as we discussed early on, the Ten Commandments are the bedrock. The Ten Commandments are the moral law of God for all people in all culture, in all nations, in all seasons, in all chapters, in all generations, in all time. It's the moral law of God. And even people who don't have the written word of God, who don't have the written word of God, according to Romans 2, the commandments of God are written on their heart. So they know these things intuitively. The reason that I go back to that series title, Building on Bedrock, is that we have been discussing here of late the fact that the bedrock is being attacked and the effort of our culture and of our civilization is to uh, destroy the bedrock. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Ten Commandments, maybe you've noticed, are not popular. They used to be just um, part of our culture, part of our upbringing, part of our fabric, part of our government, part of our life, part of everything, part of the schools. It was just part of our life. It was who we were. That's all changed. And it's changed to our detriment. Our title tonight is... Fathers, Atheism, and Homosexuality. Because there's a tie. And there's a tie between those three things. And there is a tie to the Ten Commandments. And there is a tie to our culture and to our nation and to where we are and to what's going on that we are watching on a daily basis. So last week, I uh, gave you a premise 
I would like to read it again and then add two additional notes to it. So our premise from last week was this. We are witnessing a, on a daily basis, the unraveling of a nation that is abandoning the moral law of God as given in the Ten Commandments. One more time. We are witnessing on a daily basis the unraveling of a nation that is abandoning the moral law of God as given in the Ten Commandments. Psalm 11, 3, the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We're, we're watching daily, hourly attacks on the Ten Commandments, on the, on the bedrock. We've been on the Seventh Commandment. The commandments are listed in Exodus 20. They are repeated again in Deuteronomy 5. It's stated in Deuteronomy 4 that the commandments are for our good, God says, and for the good of our children who are yet to come. God gives us these commandments because they are the best way to live. But we think we know best. But we don't know best. Proverbs 16 says, there, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. The end thereof is destruction. We're watching the death of a culture. We're watching the death of a civilization. We're watching the death of a nation because we think we know better than God. There is an unraveling. Before we go any further, Malachi 4 Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, and there is a Micah, too. But we're going Malachi tonight. Uh, so Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 4 is the last chapter of the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi 6 is the last verse of the Old Testament. And then... By the way, you see Malachi 4, 6? And then you turn the page, and you got Matthew 1. Uh, those two books are separated by 400 years. God didn't speak for 400 years. If you were God, and you weren't going to speak for 400 years, the last thing you would say would be important. If you were God, what would you say if you weren't going to speak for 400 years? Here's what God said. Verse 6, and he, when he comes, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. It's fascinating, isn't it? God could have talked a lot, of, a lot about a lot of things, but he talks about fathers and their children. And he talks about the land. He talks about a nation. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. How cursed is the nation whose God isn't the Lord, you see. God is very concerned about fathers and children and, and their hearts, their hearts. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He wants to fix broken hearts. He wants to fix broken relationships. He wants to fix broken families. That's what he wants to do. That's why he was going to send Christ. 
That's why he sent John the Baptist. And, and this is a reference to John the Baptist in, in the New Testament. It's a reference to him in Luke 117. John the Baptist came to do two things. He came to pave the way for Christ and he came to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children. He had a men's ministry, if you will, because God is concerned about men and their homes because as, a, as families go, so goes the nation. We have been camping out on the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And every time we mention that, we also say that was given as a protection of marriage because marriage is the fundamental building block of human society and culture. It's in there from the beginning. Absolutely. Have you not read that from the beginning he made them male and female, Jesus said. You see? Well, a lot of people in our times obviously have not read that. But see, that's the fundamental building block. Is it not? Yes, it is. So, we're unraveling. Now, that's the premise. To that premise, I want to add two additional things. Number one, the speed of the unraveling. The speed of the unraveling. Number two, the interconnections of the unraveling. We're just not unraveling here. We're just not unraveling over here or there or over there or in that issue or in that issue or in that issue. Not just morally, just not sexually, just not in terms of governing. We are unraveling everywhere and it's connected. We're unraveling economically. We're unraveling. It's everywhere, is it not? Mary and I were talking about this earlier this week. She brought it up. It's astonishing how fast everything's gone downhill. <clears throat> it's an avalanche. Yes, it is. Carl Truman has been a professor at um, Westminster Seminary. He's now at Grove College. And right after we had that conversation, I found a post he had made called The West is a Third World Country. He's talking about America. He's talking about Canada. He's talking, and we're not typically third world, but actually we are now. He says, cultural conservatives, and you know, you can take that politically but that would also include um, Bible-believing Christians. Cultural conservatives face a time when it is not simply a question of debating the nature of our culture on some commonly agreed foundation. That's how it used to be. It is a time when we face the complete transformation of our culture into an anti-culture. And then he says this, Perhaps one of the most confusing aspects of this present age is the sheer speed 
with which unquestioned orthodoxies, fundamental truths, for example, the nature of marriage, or the tight connection between biology and gender. I mean, that was just a given. Or the vital importance of free speech to a free society are either crumbling before our eyes or have been completely overthrown. If cultural conservatives are to respond to these changes, it's not enough to address each of them as a isolated, discrete phenomenon. Why not? They're interconnected. That's the second point. It's the sheer speed of the unraveling. Secondly, it's all interconnected. So in World Magazine, Marvin Olasky, the only news magazine, I used to subscribe to Time, Newsweek, U.S. News, um, more than that. I subscribe to one now, uh, World Magazine. That's it. They're, uh, they look at the world from a biblical viewpoint. They do great journalism. Um, they're the best, anyway. So uh, Marvin Olasky is, I think, executive editor. He's interviewed, he has an article, it's an interview with a professor at Patrick Henry College, Patrick Henry College in Virginia, a man named Stephen Baskerville. The title of the um, interview, the article, is Connecting the Dots, Assessing the interaction of adultery, the seventh commandment, no-fault divorce, LGBTQ trends, poverty, and church surrender. Because they're all connected. And this gentleman, who I was not familiar with uh, until this morning, when I saw this interview, Stephen Baskerville has written several books, the latest of which is The New Politics of Sex. The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Governmental Power. It's what you want to read just before you drop off to sleep at night. Don't read it at night. You won't go to sleep. <clears throat> Some questions. He's interviewing this guy. So let me give you a little bit. This will kind of get us into this tonight. Okay? So uh, Olasky asks this. Patrick Henry, Henry College is a Christian built on the Word of God school. So he's asking this Christian professor... Should we mourn the abandonment of that old-fashioned word, fornication? You don't hear that word a lot anymore. And he responds, Dr. Baskerville says, Many churches are deserting their post, and language is an indication. Even from the pulpit today, let alone in public policy, we don't hear words like fornication, adultery, cohabitation, even sin from a lot of pulpits. Uh, we hear words like misogyny, sexism, sexual harassment. We've substituted legal jargon. We've substituted legal jargon for Christian morality, and have allowed political ideology to replace Christian sexual morality. Instead of emphasizing families, pastors, churches, and local communities, moral pressure now is such that we bring in police, judges, lawyers the instruments of the coercive state to enforce a new kind of sexual morality dictated by the government. 
So Canada always seems to be on moral and legal issues um, a few steps ahead of us in terms of insanity. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, um, this was on his website this week, The End of Parental Rights, A Chilling Case from Canada. Uh, basically, a 14-year-old girl, well, I'll read this, a couple paragraphs, because that fits with what Olasky uh, uh, and uh, Baskerville are talking about here. Uh, Jeremiah Keenan, reporter for The Federalist, documented the decision last Wednesday in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. The court ordered that a 14-year-old girl receive testosterone injections without parental consent. The court also declared that if either of her parents referred to her using female pronouns or addressed her by her birth name, the parents could be charged with family violence. That's insane. Despite, and, and the father's pretty sharp. They start talking about her dad. And he's not, he, I mean, he's, he's all over this. And he's done research. And he's, I'm just going to read you a snippet. Despite the father's concerns and right as a parent, the doctor informed the parents that hormone treatments would commence simply based on the express consent of the child and the agreement of doctors. The, head, the lead doctor claimed that he had the right to usurp parental control due to prevailing law in British Columbia known as the Infants Act. Well, she's 14. When the father sought an injunction from the court in British Columbia, a judge deemed that the daughter was empowered with consent to medical treatment for gender dysphoria. The father responded to the court's decision, stating, the government has taken over my parental rights. They're using my daughter like she's a guinea pig in an experiment. And then he goes on and talks about that, he says, is the British Columbia Children's Hospital going to be there in five years when she rejects her male identity? Because a lot of teenagers who make the transition decide they don't want that and they come back to it. As they make a lot of decisions they think are cool and then they come back to the original decision. And then he says, where are they going to be in five years? It's an absolute usurpation of parental. It's, it's insane. That's a new course of morality. This is where we are. Back to Baskerville and uh, Olasky. Olasky says in your book, The New Politics of Sex, you connect the dots. And then he says, our multifaceted sexual resolution has had a huge impact on our society. But scholars, journalists, Christians, and our clergy have not shown the interconnections. Cohabitation didn't come purely from the culture. Cohabitation is fake marriage. Cohabitation is living as husband and wife and having kids, but you're not married. It's adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Why not? Because God wants to protect the institution of what? Marriage. marriage. So cohabitation is an assault on marriage. Cohabitation didn't come just from the culture. It came from public, public policy changes like the creation of the welfare state that offered a very clear financial incentive to have children out of wedlock. We'll pay you to have kids and not be married. Olasky asked, <clears throat> what ideologies are churches up against? 
He says the first claim is for unlimited freedom, but there's also a corollary to that. Unlimited freedom, no restraints. We're starting to see now the authoritarian side to it, Canada. And we're also seeing it here. Civil liberty violations in the name of sexual freedom, both feminist and homosexualist, are growing. This is, a much, this is much more than just a problem for Christians. It's a problem, a crisis for our society as a whole. So the basis, the First Amendment, is freedom of religion. But now that's up against sexual freedom, and uh, there, there's no stopping the bulldozer of sexual freedom. This is where we are. Uh, Olasky says, churches and pastors are feeling enormous pressure. He responds, Baskerville, by saying, there's a feeling that the churches have only two choices, either to present a dogmatic biblical view or to surrender. Churches should combine compassion with biblical principles and find ways to show homosexuals that God loves them and that the church loves them, which is the gospel. But at the same time, homosexuals have embarked on a very destructive lifestyle, and our society is also making destructive choices. We need to be assertive on both of these courts. Velasky says, can we apply some lessons from history and sociology? He responds, the Puritans, 1600s, 1700s. By the way, when you read about fathering, and I've got one, two, three books here. Um, I counted them the other day, and my editor asked me how many books I had spread out, and I had 28. The majority of those, when talking about fathering, went back to the Puritans as the golden age of fathering. The Puritans were the best of fathers, because the, you say Puritans? I thought those guys were weird guys. No, no. The world says they're weird. Puritans wanted to keep the church pure. They wanted to obey what God says. That's why they're mocked and ridiculed and scorned. So they took serious, love your wife as Christ loves the church. They were good family men. Um, when the age of the Puritans passed, the emphasis went from fathering, leading their children in godliness, to fathers leading their children in happiness. And there's a difference. Back to the Puritans. He says, the Puritans emphasized family. That led to periods of enormous prosperity, political freedom, and watch this, social stability. But truncated relationships, I had to look that up, cut off relationships, broken families, open the child to hypermasculinity and gangs. Book of Proverbs, what is it, the first nine chapters? Father teaching his son about wisdom and life. You know what chapter one's about? Staying away from gangs. Never uses the word gangs, but he talks about peer pressure. When your friends say, let's do this, and let's go do this, and let's go get crazy, and don't do it. The thing about gangs, they're all fatherless boys. Um, Baskerville goes on and says, we have an epidemic of father. Now watch this, watch this. He's gonna start connecting. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness 
in our society. And here he goes. This guy's a straight shooter. How many of those children who are fatherless are developing same-sex attractions because they don't have a healthy male to identify with? Now, see, this is the connection that is rarely discussed and rarely talked about. God says you shall not commit adultery because he wants to protect marriage. What happens when there is adultery? And what happens when marriage breaks down? And when fathers leave, what happens? Children are not protected. Families are not protected. All kinds of bad stuff happens. You see. Um, I mentioned Malachi, but we also want to take a look at Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verse 4. We're just talking about family relationships and the importance of the family. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit of God in Ephesians 5. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he addresses wives. Then he addresses husbands. Uh, then he addresses children in 6.1. And then he, in, in 6.4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, we, we have a lot of angry children a lot. Why are they angry? Because they are fatherless. And now it used to be a hundred years ago that a lot of children were fatherless. A hundred years ago, most children who were fatherless were fatherless because their fathers had died. We didn't have the medical advancements. We didn't have the antibiotics that we have now. We didn't have this. We didn't have that. Men would die. Men didn't live as long. Men worked, uh, more, more men worked with their hands. They worked in factories. They were, it was dangerous, and men would die. Um, but that's not the issue primarily today with fatherlessness. Uh, it's a whole other issue. Uh, and see, when a child's father would die, they could get closure. But when a father leaves, when a father departs, when a father is even physically absent, but emotionally absent, you don't get closure on that. It's a lingering wound. It's a lingering hurt. It's a lingering pain. And what happens is that there is a godly built-in connection that a father has with his children, with a son and with a daughter, that uh, fills their emotional tank. And when that tank is not filled, there is a yearning and there is a hunger for that to be filled somewhere by someone. But see, this all starts off with, you shall not commit adultery. Because adultery predicts marriage. You marry for life. But we made divorce easy. You divorce on a whim. Nothing can interfere with your personal peace and happiness and your right to express yourself and find greater freedom and whatever. 
So the fact that we're unraveling, we're unraveling with incredible speed, we're unraveling, and even though it seems that this is separate from this, actually it's not, it's all interconnected. This brings us uh, to the subjects of uh, fathers, atheism, and homosexuality. Thought we'd just go light tonight. This is, um, this is hard stuff, it's, and it's heartbreaking stuff, heartbreaking. In, in, the, in the last, what, 20, 30 years, there's been a rise, an incredible rise in atheism, there's been an incredible rise in homosexuality. That's because there is a correlation between fatherlessness and the rise of atheism and the rise of homosexuality. Let me, uh, let me give you a few quotes. By the way, if, <laughs> I'm going to come back to Ephesians 6.4. I haven't forgotten about it. But I want to set this up. We're setting a lot of stuff up here tonight, okay? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish off with um, three traits of healthy fathering. So if you're looking for an outline tonight, We'll get there in about three hours. <laughs> this, is, this is all introduction, but we're going to deal with the three traits of healthy fathering. That's where we're going. But you know, sometimes you got to back up and get a running start, don't you? So Douglas Wilson, who's a pastor and theologian, has written a book um, called uh, Father Hunger. Um, he, he, is a, he is a thinker. He's very biblical. This really caught my eye a number of years ago when I first read this book. He, he was talking about atheism, and, and then he says this. In the midst of considering these things, atheism, it once occurred to me that one of the breeding grounds for this modern atheism may well be the English boarding school system. That's fascinating. Take your nation's best and brightest, take your most precocious sons, and send them away to boarding school. Give them a first-rate education apart from mother and apart from dad. What could go wrong? Christopher Hitchens lost his faith at boarding school, as did his brother Peter, although Peter returned to the faith. C.S. Lewis lost his faith at boarding school. Atheist Richard Dawkins went to boarding school. There is a graduate thesis in there for somebody. Yes, there is. Um, Paul Vitz, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Faith of the fatherless. 
faith of the fatherless. He talks about um, significant atheists and their relationships to their fathers. In many cases, men who were very, very religious and absolute hell to live with. But he, in his preface, he writes this. Only as it starts to fade can we see how strange the modern world has been. It is natural that some distance is needed for the characteristics of the modern to become obvious. And nothing has been more typical of public life, especially than the presumption of atheism. God has been banished from public discourse so thoroughly that in today's high schools we teach about condoms and masturbation, but are legally prohibited from making references to the deity. The rejection of God in our schools is just one small example of the triumph of atheism. That such a rejection of God should have been triumphed is quite remarkable, even bizarre. After all, the United States has long been known as a seriously religious country. In the 1840s, Alexis de Tocqueville clearly identified the profoundly religious character of the United States. He said, America is still the place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest real power over men's souls. The religious atmosphere of the country was the very first thing that struck me upon arrival in the United States. Religion, which never intervenes directly in the government of society, should therefore be considered as first of America's political institutions. James Turner, a historian who has studied the origins of atheism in Western society and in America in particular, has pointed out that the known unbelievers, the known unbelievers of Europe and America before the French Revolution of 1789 numbered fewer than a dozen or two. That's how many atheists there were. Twelve or fourteen. Nobody was an atheist. It's completely flopped. And it's picking up speed. David Blankenhorn wrote this about almost 20 years ago now. The United States is becoming an increasingly fatherless society. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his or her father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parody with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. It's about 50-50. There is a connection. There is a connection. These things are not isolated from one another. Um, David Popeno, in his book, Life Without Father, compelling new evidence that fatherhood and marriage are indispensable for the good of children and society. Remember Deuteronomy 4? I'm giving you these commandments so that it might go well with you and with your children. What I want to do is quote about 
48 pages in this thing. Um, but I won't. He has a section here. The decline of fatherhood. The decline of fatherhood is one of the most basic, unexpected, and extraordinary social trends of our time. The trend can be captured in a single telling statistic. In just three decades, from 1960 to 1990, the percentage of children living apart from their biological fathers more than doubled from 17% to 36%. Now, why did that happen? Well, go read the court cases. Go read the, the laws. Uh, you'd find no-fault divorce. Divorce on a whim. You shall not commit adultery. Well, it doesn't have to be adultery. It can be a whim. Uh, I, I mean, she's put on five pounds. I'm, I'm not putting up with this. You shall not commit adultery. Why? Because it's the protection of marriage, which is the protection of children. There are, um, there are consequences to these things. He goes on and says, um, across time and cultures, fathers have always been considered by societies to be essential and not just for their sperm. I recently read several articles about children. Uh, their fathers were sperm donors. And they're doing everything they can do, hiring attorneys to find out who their dads are. One of them found their dad and uh, as best can be figured, this guy has uh, fathered over 300 children. He didn't know any of them. He was just getting his jollies and making money. Doing his own thing. You do your thing and I'll do mine. And see, it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. The problem is it devastates them, it kills them. It breaks their hearts. It curses the land, as Malachi says. This is serious stuff. You cannot walk away from God's moral truth and just think you're going to get off scot-free without any difficulty or hardship or pain. So there is a correlation between the rise of atheism and the rise of fatherlessness. There is a correlation, as we've seen, between the rise of homosexuality and the rise of fatherlessness. I, uh, I'd recommend two videos for you. There is a, um, and I've recommended these before, it's been a couple of years since I have. Uh, Living Hope Ministries has put out these two videos. And by the way, they're extremely biblical. They're, uh, very balanced, very truthful, which is why uh, Apple just censored their app. Of course. I mean, we can't have this stuff floating around. It, uh, the, there are two videos, uh, one called Why? Understanding Homosexuality and Gender Development in Males, which is in our presentation, and in one presentation, the best thing I've ever seen in an hour on this whole subject. And then, uh, Ricky Chevette did this, and then Deanne Davis, also at Living Hope Ministry, so this one's called Why, so you got why, why, homosexuality, lesbianism, 
understanding homosexuality and gender development in females. Uh, the, the issues are very different because males are different <laughs> from females. But there's an epidemic. Both of these are tremendous. I, I, couldn't, I can't recommend them highly enough. Uh, and just about every family I know of in an extended family is dealing with this issue now because this thing is so epidemic. This is sobering, isn't it? So, what do we do? And is this wrapped up, some of this stuff? Is, is there an aspect of Let me, let me back up. So when you talk about fathers, atheism, and homosexuality, <laughs> that can put a great guilt trip on any father. And whenever you talk about fathering, you know what happens? Guys get guilty. Because there's one perfect father, and it's not you and it's not me. We're all sinners for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Even after we come to know Christ, we still sin. We still have a sin nature. We're growing in grace. This is why uh, the enemy uses regret in our lives. We look back and we just, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I acted like that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe that was my behavior. I can't, and, and we grieve. We just grieve over what we did in the past. But the great news of the gospel is that Christ has died for our sins and there is forgiveness in him. He has taken, when we trust in him, when we turn from our sin and turn to him with our hearts, he forgives us. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And then, now that we're born again, we begin the process of growing in Christ. But we start out as infants on the milk, and then we grow slowly and get the, the meat of the Word of God, and we begin to mature. But we still have our issues. No perfect fathers. Uh, every father in here has done damage. Now, the enemy will just wrap you up in knots. If you focus on that, what you got to focus on is Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we get to Ephesians 6.4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We all did things that made our kids angry. And it might have been 40 years ago, and now they're adults and they're still angry, perhaps. And they still got issues, maybe to the point that they won't even talk with you. Well, I can just tie you in a knot. What, what, what do you do when you have regrets over your past? First of all, you've got you, you to hold on to the grace and mercy of Christ. And you've got to believe that he loves to take which the years which the locusts have eaten. He says, the years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore in Joel, Joel chapter 2. Uh, God can heal families. What he says in Malachi. When John the Baptist comes, he'll restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. He'll restore the hearts. 
Children get angry about all kinds of things. Um, I guess in a way, what we could say is what we're dealing with, when you talk about fatherlessness, you're talking about uh, absentee fathers. Either fathers who have never been there, I don't know who my father is, he was just a sperm donor, um, or a father that had a relationship, a boyfriend, didn't marry the mother, just impregnated her, took off. Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. I read an article where they interviewed the guys who were members of The Temptations about that song. It was pretty powerful and their own experiences with their dads. Um, one in particular had a very, very strong relationship with his father. As I recall, a couple of guys didn't. But that has devastated the black culture in America. And the white culture, we're right behind them. Oh yeah, we are. Kids get angry in their hearts over different things. They get angry when fathers are absent. They get angry when fathers are distant. They get angry when fathers uh, are not connected. They get angry when fathers are drunks. They get angry when fathers abuse. They get, they're all kinds of things. And when a father fails, let's say this. Here is a very simple prescription Here's a very, very simple prescription to, uh, to lead a family, to love a family, to demonstrate the love of Christ in a family. It's Ephesians 6.4. It, it, it is not long. It's not in depth. It's real simple. Fathers, Christian men who know Christ, don't provoke your children to anger. We used to do that, but you don't do it anymore. And here's the thing, when you do it, take care of it. Deal with it. Don't let it foul and fester. Keep short accounts. When the Spirit of God, as Christian men, when the Spirit of God convicts you about something, don't be proud. Don't have all this hubris. Don't be arrogant. What do you want God to do? You want him to have to... I mean, he takes this seriously. He disciplines us because he loves us, Hebrews 12. You, you want to keep a sensitive heart to him. When the Spirit of God convicts you, man, I should not have said that to my wife last night. You know, I was just too sharp with my daughter. Go deal with it. Years and years ago, over 30 years ago, I had a situation where I was going to speak at a conference. I had to develop, as I recall, either two or three new talks, and they weren't quite done. I was going to have to speak on Friday and Saturday. On Monday, I got this crisis call from one of the guys on the board who had met with the guy in the church who was in this huge, huge crisis. And, oh, I mean, it was big, and it was family, and, you know, 
can we meet tonight? Okay, so we met. And then as a result of that, can we meet again at 10 in the morning? And I spent, I'm going to say maybe uh, six, seven, eight hours. It was a new church. It was a new startup. Really didn't have anyone to help. I spent a lot of time on that with that guy. As, as I recall, I, I think it might have been Wednesday afternoon about four o'clock that I found out he was lying about the entire thing. And I got slightly upset. All those days I needed that time to prepare and I'd given it to him and he was lying through his teeth. And we had it on good evidence, believe me, from two or three witnesses. It was all made up. Um, we had some kind of Wednesday night deal I did and came home from church and I came in and um, I mean, I'm upset. And I sat down just to, I mean, I was exhausted just to watch a basketball game. Some I wasn't even watching. I'm just trying to decompress. And my daughter, Rachel, who was, oh, probably nine or 10, I, I noticed it was, you know, 9.45 or so, almost 10. She was usually in bed by 9.30 or so. But... Um, I'm watching this game, and, you know, she'll just come running by in the kitchen. Hi, Daddy. Hi, Rich. And then she's doing something, and, you know, bye, Daddy. And then, bye, okay. You know, and she's just being a little girl. And that happened several times, and then it happened one too many times. She just flitted one too many times. And I lost it. And I, and she said, all right, Daddy. And I said, Rachel. What are you doing up? And I said it with more intensity than this. I said, what are you doing up? It's past your bedtime. Well, Daddy, I said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear a word. Get upstairs and get in bed now. Do you understand me? Now. Not a word. I'll show you who's leading this family. I'll show you who's walking with Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. And she broke into tears and went upstairs. And I did feel bad. But, you know, leaders lead. Mm, I don't know, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes later, Mary comes downstairs. And she said, Steve, can I just talk with you for a minute? I know you're watching the game. And I said, yeah. She said, can I explain to you why Rachel was up? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you know, we've been working, Rachel and I have been working on the science project for about two weeks. Oh, yeah. Was I working on the science project? Oh, no, not me. I'm deep in the Word of God. Yeah, the science project? Yeah. Well, she, um, you know, one of the other moms picked her up, the carpool thing today after school, and I said, yeah. And when she dropped Rachel off, uh, she drove off, and the science project is in her car, and we can't get a hold of her. And we got to finish it off because it's due in the morning. And I said, oh, and there were no cell phones back then. I said, I didn't know that. And she said, no, I, I know you didn't, but I just wanted to tell you that's why she was up. 
So what do you do? I was wrong. I was, con- I was under conviction of the Holy Spirit because I had just violated this passage of Scripture, which I was probably going to teach on that weekend. So I went upstairs, and she was in bed. And I went up, and I just talked to her, and I said, Rachel, I want to ask your forgiveness. Mommy just told me what happened. I didn't realize, and I didn't even give you a, I didn't even give you a minute to talk, did I, sweetheart? And she said no. And so we just talked for a few minutes, and I told her how sorry I was. And you know that's not a time to make excuses. You just come clean and you tell them you were wrong. Corey Ten Boom once said, "The blood of Jesus never cleansed an excuse." I was wrong, Rachel. I couldn't have been more wrong. And Mary came in, and we talked, can I help? I know we're still waiting to get the mom. And Okay, so she said, it's okay, it's okay, Daddy. She said, you're very tired. That's what she said to me. And I thought, you know, I am very tired. I better go to bed before I emotionally damage anybody else in this family. <laughs> now, was I mad at Rachel? No. No, that's called displaced anger. Right. Who am I mad at? I'm mad at, I'm mad at the bozo who lied to me for three days. And what I wanted to do was take that sucker apart in the name of Jesus, but I couldn't do it. So then what do I do? Oh, I'm the big, you know, I'll take it out of the nine-year-old girl. I went to bed, but I couldn't sleep. This is absolutely true. After about an hour, I got up, I put on my clothes, I drove down to the 24-hour Kroger and I got a little, uh, in the floral apartment, I got a little vase of flowers and I found a card with a picture of a man looking out of a doghouse. I bought about a hundred of them. (laughs) And I came home and I put that on the breakfast table at her little place and I wrote her a little note because I had ruined her night. I was gonna try to get her day off better. That's my job. Do you think God would have blessed me if I had not have gone upstairs and dealt with that situation and gone to that conference? and spoken to a bunch of people. Are you kidding me? He would have disciplined me. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't do that. And when you do that, they get angry. Kids don't expect us to be perfect. They expect us as Christian men to be honest and to be transparent and to be authentic and to forgive just as we've been forgiven. You see? And when that doesn't happen... It's not good in a family. Kids get angry about all kinds of things. And may I say this? We've all made mistakes in the past. Maybe there is something that even as we're here tonight is coming to your mind that is left hanging from a confrontation or something that you brought about and you never resolved. Well, that was years ago. Take care of it. Go take care of it. Go heal the wound. Put some biblical balm of Gilead in the wound and let the Lord heal it and ask forgiveness with a broken and contrite spirit. Heal it up. Why would you not do that? You wouldn't do it because of pride. Don't let the devil con you like that. 
You'll bless them. You'll bless them. Now, that's my introduction for this evening. Let me give you three traits of healthy fathering. And, and I'm coming around. This is all interconnected. In the studies, if you, if you watch these two videotapes, which are excellent, again, put out by Living Hope Ministries or Live Hope, you find it on the Internet. They will say this. Other books I've read on homosexuality who have researched it will say this. What often comes out from those who are in a homosexual lifestyle is anger in regard to fathers. It, it can be a mother, but we've got men here. And there's anger over three things. Number one, a lack of affirmation. Number two, a lack of affection. And number three, a lack of attention. So therefore, I mean, this is pretty consistent across the board. You hear this. So I would say one of the applications out of Ephesians 6, 4, and there could be many applications, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because if you're trying to teach them the things of God, you don't want them wounded because they're not going to listen to you. So therefore, I come up with this. Healthy fathering, as opposed to absentee fathering, would be characterized by these three things. Here's the outline. Number one, affirmation. Affirmation. And this is not just true of little kids. If you're raising kids at home, I, I think it's true if you have adult kids. Because they still need their, I mean, it's a different relationship, they're adults. But you know what? They still need to be affirmed. Now, I'm not saying affirm them in everything. If they're in sin, you don't affirm them. But by affirmation, what it is, say a, a child in your home, it is an acknowledgement that God has created them, God has given them to you and your wife, and he has made them, he has wired them with certain proclivities and strengths and gifts. He's given them some gifts, he's withheld other gifts. Case in point, you're, um, you're Joe Athlete, you're Joe Jock. In fact, you're Joe Jock Strap. You love sports. I mean, you just love sports. You've always loved sports. And you love it to this day. And you have a son, and he doesn't love sports. Now, you got to handle that. And you got to affirm him. Because God made him. Ricky Chillette, in this video on homosexuality, gives two broad categories of boys. He talks about rough and tumble boys, majority of boys, just rough and tumble, you know, they're the boys, running around, playground, falling down, busting their arm, you know, that whole thing. But then you got what he calls sensitive boys. Now, is it just black and white? No, because most kids are a combination. 
you know, 70, 30, 30, 70, whatever. Each kid's different, right? But if you've got a real sensitive boy, uh, he's probably not going to be real physical. He's not going to be real interested in sports. He's going to be more cerebral. He's going to be more uh, quiet. He's going to be a reader. He's going to be a thinker. He's not real, um, he's not physical. He may not even be real coordinated. You got to handle that. And you got to affirm that boy. And you got to love him. And you got to get into his little heart. And you got to encourage him. You see, because Satan can have a field day with that. You got to get into his little heart. And you got and when he feels like he's left out and all the other boys, you got to be right there and say, son, let me tell you. Can I tell you something about sports? It's a game. It's just a game. It's just one big game. Even the guys that make it all the way to the pros, it's just a game. Now, it's not much of a game up there because there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurts and there's a lot of injuries that last a lot of those guys for the rest of their lives. Most guys never make it that far. But you got to remember this. It's a game. That's all it is. It's, a, it's like checkers. It's just a game. And some guys like doing it. You're really not into that, are you? You're into reading. You're into this. You know what? That's great. That's great. That's how God wired you. And what you do is you affirm them and you encourage them. And it's, it, it runs against your grain, but you know what? That's your job. Now, can I say this to you? If you're sitting here and you're under a mound of guilt because you didn't do that, is that child still alive? Then start doing that. Just reconnect. Not going to all happen overnight. You just make appropriate steps to reconnect into their heart. Maybe you talk with your wife, you talk to a good friend and say, hey, I'm struggling. You got any ideas for me? And just God will bless you for that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Every boy, every daughter needs that. Now, again, not sinful behavior, not disobedient. We're not talking that. You get this. But who they are. Secondly, first thing is affirmation. Second thing is affection. Affection. I'm going to tell you something. I am not, by nature, very affectionate. I'm just not. And it's been when a great... Um, I mean, I got to think about it. Sometimes I am, but not always. Um, I don't, I, 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 it's not an excuse. It, it's not my proclivity. So I got to be aware of it. I got to be conscious of it. And the older I get, I try to be more aware of it. I ask the Lord to actually help me with it. Because I wasn't that great at it. Now, I knew enough that when they were hurting, you'd, you hug them and you hold them and all that. And, and little girls need their daddies to hold them. Uh, 
Wives need their husbands. I, I didn't really understand that too well. I was the oldest of three boys, and we, I, I just wasn't good um, at holding. And in fact, as I recall, every time I held uh, an official threw a flag. <laughs> and uh, we got penalized 15 yards because I was holding. And it, it was just a little humor there in the midst of a heavy deal. But you know what? I, I, have, I have had to ask the Lord to help me with this affection because this is critical. I'll never forget. I'll never forget decades ago sitting in an empty house on top of a hill overlooking a city. Talking with a guy, I was doing a conference and I was staying in this big home and I didn't even see him until maybe nine o'clock and he walked in the door and introduced himself and they must have had eight, nine, ten bedrooms. This was a massive place. And he introduced him, you know, we just started talking and uh, he started opening up and he lived there all by himself. He had a wife, he had a bunch of kids, he had a bunch of grandkids, and he lived there by himself because his wife walked out on him and he told me, he said, you know what the issue was? I never demonstrated affection. One of the saddest conversations I've ever had with anybody in my life. And, and she got angry. See, people get angry. The third one is attention. So you got affirmation, affection, attention. And this is huge for homosexuals or heterosexuals. Attention. Eye to eye. One thing I did pick up from somebody, I, I, I remember when Josh was a little guy and one time we had a, he was lying to me about something. I knew he was like, hey, he was pretty good. He almost had me. Cute little kid, about four, just cute little guy. I mean, daddy, I, I promised daddy I didn't do it. I did, I tarry, daddy, I told tarry. You no, know, he said that later. He wasn't tarry because he didn't do it. I mean, he, he had me tied up in like a pretzel. Oh, that cute little kid, he couldn't have sinned. I mean, my gosh, he comes from me. I mean, he didn't do that. And then I got my sense, and I, I mean, I, he was as guilty. I mean, Johnny Cochran couldn't have gotten this kid off. And I said, wait a minute. But he was afraid, you know, I'm looming over him and he's just, look. so I got down on a knee. And I said, Josh, come here. He was probably four or five, maybe, could have been six, I don't remember. And he wasn't sure he wanted to. I said, come on. And I just put my, and he walked over and I put my hand on his back and I just looked him in the eye. And then we started talking. And I said, you know what, Josh? You're afraid you're going to get spanking, aren't you? And I was just looking at him. And I, I thought, I'm looming over this kid. I've got to change the atmosphere. And I said, so, Josh, here's the deal. And I'm looking right in the eye. It's always easy to lie. But it's hard to tell the truth. I said, isn't it? He said, yeah, Dad. This is really hard. I said, you know, Josh, if you tell me the truth, I won't spank you. 
He said, well, I did it, Daddy. And I said, yeah, I, I, I know you did. He said, how'd you know? I said, well, I used to be five. <laughs> and see, the whole dynamics changed because I'm on a knee and I'm looking you eye to eye. And I said, yeah, I, I, would, I used to lie all the time. He said, you lied? I said, oh, I, I lied all the time. I was a great liar. He said, I can't believe you were a liar. I said, oh, I was one of the all-time greats. He said, you lie. I said, man, I lied, and, but my, my dad, your papa, he wouldn't let me. I mean, I'd get spanked. Because he knew one day I was going to grow up and be a daddy. And see, you can't have a good family. Would you like it if I lied to mommy? He said, you wouldn't lie to mommy, would you? And I said, no. Because you can't have a good marriage if you lie to each other. We just had a conversation eye to eye. When you talk with them, whether they're 6 or 16 or 36, eye to eye. And listen. Listen shows respect. Listening says, I love you and I care about what's going on in your life. And that kind of response from a dad doesn't anger, does it? It's healthy. You want that, I want it. There's one perfect father. The rest of us need the perfect father. So let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven. Thank you. Thank you that we can come into your presence through the blood of Jesus. We can come into the Holy of Holies and talk with you. And we have access to you. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. We can come in any time into your presence like Todd Lincoln could go right by everybody at the White House and walk right into his daddy's office and talk to his daddy. And nobody else in the world could do that. But see... It was his father. We come to you. We pray for broken families. We pray for broken hearts. We pray for broken relationships. We thank you for forgiveness of our sins that comes through the blood of Christ on that cross on our behalf. We pray that the years which the locusts have eaten you would restore and that you would heal our families and heal our relationships. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our relationships with our children. That you would heal hearts through our transparency and through our vulnerability and through our honesty. And that where there has been pain, we pray that there could be health. And where there's been curse, there would be blessing. Heal our families. Heal our hearts. Heal our land. Through Jesus, his name we pray. Amen.